You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. I'm your host, David Frizzell, and my guest in this episode is Margie Island, leadership expert, psychologist, coach, and keynote speaker. Margie has written a terrific new book called The Happy, Healthy Leader. So this one, folks, goes right to the heart of what this podcast is all about. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Margie Island. Margie Island, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Pleasure to have you here, Margie. And full disclosure for listeners, this, is, this doesn't happen very often, but I actually know Margie. She's been a longtime friend and mentor of my wife, and, and Margie and I have had the odd coffee over the years. And then lo and behold, your <laughs> book comes through my email through our, our, our mutual publicist. And, uh, and here you are. That's the first time that's ever happened to me that Scott oh. has sent me a book of someone <laughs> I know personally. So that's a nice touch. Oh, I'm pleased to be your first. <laughs> and, and, and it also means we get to do this podcast together in a room, which always sounds just that little bit yeah. better. So Margie, great book, by the way, The Happy, Healthy Leader, Achieve Your Potential Even During a Crisis. I really loved it. It's, it's a broad book for a leadership book. You really do tackle a lot of the big issues that leaders think about. I'm really interested of all the paths you could have taken. You had a long career in recruitment, executive recruitment, then you became a, a clinical psychologist. Of all the potential paths, why did you land on this one where you're, you're focusing really heavily, really honing in on leadership? Yeah. Well, look, it start, probably started in that recruitment career where, you know, I did that for a long time. And yeah, you know, I got a, I got a bit burnt out myself at the end of that. But one of the things that I really have fascinated me was what motivated people in their work. You know, why did they want a job? Why did they apply for a job? And why were they leaving a job? And so when I came to the end of that career and was looking at what next, I thought it'd be really interesting to do a deep dive on that. And so when I decided to study psychology, I thought, you know, that's where I want to focus. And so, and what I learned through that process was, you know, as part of, you know, becoming a practice or registered psychologist, you have to pick a thesis topic. And so I chose CEO wellbeing and performance. Um, so it sort of kept me in that lane. And the other thing I was fascinated with was, well, why what was were leaders any different to the rest of us, particularly senior leaders? You know, what was it about them from a mindset or psychology perspective that might have been different to others? And so I was really interested in wanting to understand that and help them with that. Because one of the things I also found, I guess, interesting and frustrating at the same time is, particularly when I was interviewing people in my recruitment days, is is uncovering that potential in them, perhaps understanding, you know, where they would provide the greatest value in their next job and if they would be good for the job that I might have been working on. And now as a leadership coach, it's using psychology is so helpful in helping them uncover that stuff, you know, get through some of the mental barriers that perhaps are getting in the way of them accessing what, you know, that, that full potential that's sitting there. Now, of course, like all guests, I'm going to squeeze you for your best stuff in this conversation. We're going to find out 
exactly what it takes to become a happy, healthy leader and all the obstacles we might face along the way and how we can manage those and, and plan for our, our best leadership self. But before we get there, tell me about the concept of the happy, healthy leader. What do you imagine when you come up with that kind of title and when you talk about it? What's interesting is that the irony is, is really the healthy comes before the happy. Yeah. And so a lot of us tend to focus more on the happy, like once I'm happy, then then life will be good. And uh, Russ Harris, who I do refer to um, in the book, wrote this great book called The Happiness Trap. And he is an, Australia, is an Australian. And what he talks in there is about how this quest for happiness is what's making us unhappy. Mm. And so what I discovered through my research, but also my experience as being a leader too, is that by making the time to have a look at your own self and looking at your own health. And when I talk about health, I talk about overall health, you know, mental, physical, emotional, all those sorts of things. And, you know, what I've found or, or what I researched and then what I practiced and now help leaders with is having a focus on that first because leaders often leave themselves last. Mm. I love that about your book. I love the fact that you started off with the, the important topic of leading yourself first. And I, I mean, I think about this a lot. And you talked about just then, you kind of let leaders off the hook and, and create, you know, around the story that they leave themselves to last because they put themselves last, they put others first. That could very well be true for some people. But I have another angle that I look at that from. And I kind of think that leading yourself is the hardest bit. So that's why a lot of us don't do it. You know, we've all worked with people who are leaders in an organization, meaning they're part of the hierarchy, who clearly are not leading themselves well. They're late to meetings. They're, they're physically unhealthy and unwell. Their eating habits are poor and visibly poor. They're not getting enough rest. They send emails at 10 o'clock at night. They do all of those things. And I kind of think, how can anyone want to follow you when you are clearly leading yourself so poorly? I think it's not a case of always of leaders leaving themselves to last. I think they don't tackle it because it's the hardest thing to tackle. And it's actually easier to start bossing around other people and trying to manage the work that's going on around them to those people in the organization that have to report to them because that's what the hierarchy says. And I'm not going to address these glaring issues with my own self because that's a lot harder. What do you think about that, Harsh? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's that's definitely the case. You know, I think that well, what I've seen is that when you when you need to when you know that you're not doing well, you know, to pause and look at how you really are can be quite confronting. I mean, psychologists sometimes call it that you know the ideal self and the actual self. Mm -hmm. You know, the actual self is what's really going on. You know, how am I really doing? And then there's this kind of conflict between that and what, what you'd like to be. Mm. I also think, though, I don't necessarily talk about this in the book, but I'm, I'm learning this as I go, is that I see there's change in the generations around this stuff too because, fortunately, younger leaders coming through are looking at someone of my vintage and going, I'm not going to work weekends. I'm not going to yeah. do that. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because we're getting much better at recognizing mental health and recognizing 
how, you know, we do need to be taking better care of ourselves. And so, you know, they're learning from perhaps from our mistakes of, of not doing that. But certainly, yeah, it's knowing what to do. You know, like I'll have leaders come to me and go, I know I'm not good, but I just don't know what to do about it. So you, you're saying, and this is nice, we'll capture this, that the problem of overworking, of working weekends and sending emails at 10 o'clock at night is a bit of a generational thing. And it might be something that we can wave goodbye to over the coming generations. I like that. You know, what we were talking about before my little speech about, you know, not tackling your own challenges because they're hard. It reminds me of a concept that I learned here on the podcast that I occasionally speak of, that the false attribution error. The idea that I falsely attribute a problem differently when it's your problem compared to mine. So for example, and the, the common example is someone cuts me off in traffic. I think they're a terrible person. But when I do it to someone, I think, oh, it's just because I'm in a hurry. So when they do it, I look at their character and I judge them on character. But when I do it, I judge it on circumstances just because I'm busy. I guess the same thing could be said of leadership. You know, I'm, if I'm a senior person in an organization and parts of my life are in trauma, I'm eating poorly, I'm not exercising, I'm not getting any sleep, my mental health is poor, I work till 11 o'clock every night and send emails to my staff, I could just put that down to situation. I can give myself a break there and attribute it falsely. Whereas the people are all around me are judging it are judging my character by that. They're putting it down to my character. So I don't want to, to, to you know, dwell on this for too long, but I just can't, it just can't be overstated the importance in my eyes, the idea of a leader leading themselves first. And if they can put energy into that, then that'd be a really great place to start. All right. So we've talked about the healthy, happy leader, and, I, and I'm, I'm more than happy for you to, to correct me on that as we go through. From the thousands of conversations that you've had with people through the different parts of your career, what are the common barriers to healthy and happy leadership? Probably the first one I notice is a lack of self-awareness. Mm. And a little bit like on what we were just you were just talking about there about, you know, where they attribute things. So and that's a bit of a coping mechanism. So, you know, when we're under stress, you know, we've developed strategies to deal with that. And some are healthy and some are unhealthy. Unhealthy ones are things like drinking, eating more, taking that on staff, you know, uh, micromanaging is a really big one because, you know, I can get my hands on it. And it, you know, it comes back to that fear, flight, fright response, which I talk and unpack a lot in the book. Um, and a lot of people understand that idea of fear, flight, fright, but they don't quite understand how it shows up when they're leading. And a lot of leaders think they're doing a much better job than what they are of hiding that. <laughs> and, you know, like in all the 360 research, which is, you know, that multi-rater stuff that a lot of organisations do, only about 10% of leaders get it right. As in, you know, they, they, their self-rating of themselves is consistent with everyone else. So they either rate themselves a lot lower or a lot higher. And so... So what that says to me is that, you know, we're all really bad at hiding our stuff, you know, and, you know, as much as leaders sometimes need to be superhuman, they are still human <laughs> and, you know, they still have the same, you know, self-doubt, the same anxiety, the same worry as the rest of us. And this is what I learned through that research it's kind of what they're doing with it, though, that seems to make the difference. It's whether they've developed healthy or unhealthy coping strategies 
with that stress. And so if they have no awareness around that, that can be a huge block. So you gave us some examples of the unhealthy coping strategies, um, drinking too much, staying up too late, working overtime, snapping at your staff. What are some examples of good coping strategies when we're under pressure as leaders? Yeah, really good question. So look, the first one I think is, you know, recognizing where you're at. And as much as you don't want to stand there and go, I'm not happy and I am unhealthy, it's the first part of the journey. Mm. You know, it's like, you know, where am I, you know, where am I in this journey? You know, how am I really doing? So even just starting there can be good. Second one is stuff that we talk about all the time, which is, you know, moving your body. You know, exercise stimulates really good um, hormones that are really good at helping with mood um, and managing stress. In fact, some of the hormones that exercise create can, you know, intervene with stress. Things like connecting with people is another good one. Sadly, a lot of leaders, and and I say this with the greatest of respect to male leaders, I mean, it's not all male leaders, it's more all males or many males struggle to ask for help. Mm. And, you know, there's libraries full of research around why that exists, and I talk about that in the book. Mm. But it's being able to, you know, say, I'm not coping, and what gets in the way of that is fear and shame. Mm. And so, but, you know, realising that they're not the only one um, and asking for help, and that could just be a friend, a mate, a mentor, a coach, could be anyone. So, and then one, the one that I'm a huge fan of is mindfulness as a coping strategy for stress. And you devote one of your seven steps to I mindfulness. I do. And you know, I could hear, you know, some listen, listeners maybe rolling their eyes going, oh, yeah, I've heard about this mindfulness. Mm. and It's all the rage. It's a bit of a fad. But, but I that's act- the thing, it's not, is it? We've given it a, a <laughs> modern title, but it's not a fad. We can trace it back to ancient philosophers. Yeah, exactly. And it comes from Eastern traditions. And But, you know, in the 70s, we started to operationalise it for a Western appetite. Mm. And what we started to see in cancer patients was people that under, were practising mindfulness were better able to manage their pain. That's mm. how we first came across it. And when we talk about pain, that could be emotional pain, mental pain because you've had a bad day. And so it's now become you know, more researched and more used. And I used it in my CEO dissertation. And so I got these 15 male CEOs to practise mindfulness just for four weeks and all of their well-being scores went up just in four weeks. And that's the only thing I got them to do. So it really does work. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. It's probably fair to say that when we get busy and we feel under pressure and everyone in every organisation and every industry says that that's the case for them, especially those in senior leadership positions, that type of thing, mindfulness, it sort of seems pretty high on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it's not the sort of thing that we, we might dedicate our time to if we're feeling under pressure for tangible deliverables. But as you talk about, and as so many psychologists tell us about, it's the most important thing. And it can come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. I've been doing this podcast for a long time and 
you know, I've heard mindfulness and how important it is so often. And I've come to understand that while I don't dedicate specific time to sitting and thinking and feeling my breath and all of those type of things, I swim four or five times a week. That is my mindfulness. And I think for some people, it can come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Is that true? Or am I fooling myself into thinking that I'm doing it? Look, I think it can be that way. The research around mindfulness is the actual practice of the quiet reflection activity. That's where there's evidence, right? So that's why I always refer to that because that's the thing where I can say to you, absolutely, there is proof that this changes how we respond to stress, how we respond to um, worry. So that's where the evidence sits. However, you know, some people don't like it. You know, they prefer to do things like swimming or um, it might be, you know, walking their dog. But when you're doing those things, the important part of mindfulness, however you want to approach it, is bringing yourself back into the swim. So when your mind drifts to planning or worrying about something in the past or the future, it's putting your you know, focusing on the lane, you know, watching the black line as you swim, noticing how it's, you know, hearing the water, you know, bringing yourself back into the pool. If it's going for a walk, it's taking your music out, your podcast out, not all the time, and actually being on the walk. You know, what can I smell? What can I hear? That kind of stuff. That's the power of it because it helps you to build this ability to bring yourself back to the here and now. And it's a little bit like like when you go run a marathon, you don't just suddenly show up and think I'm going to give one a go. Well, most people wouldn't. They would train for it. What the practice of mindfulness does is when you really need it, so in those moments of high stress when suddenly, you know, S hits the fan and you've got a crisis, the practice of it seems to help you be able to deal with that better, be able to turn on that more logical part of your brain a hell of a lot faster so that you can make a good decision as opposed to a reactive decision. So the idea of of when we're under pressure, the fight or flight mode, our brain shuts off, the executive function of our brain shuts off. We go back into reptile brain that knows whether to fight or run or freeze and the ability to turn back on your executive function is what puts people, you know, on one side or the other or of deals well under pressure. Someone who can turn back on their brain and start thinking rather than just reacting. So this is great. We've talked about mindfulness. This all came back to the question I asked you about in your experience, what do you what barriers do you see of people into you know, barriers to becoming a happy, healthy leader? And the first one you gave me was a lack of self-awareness. We'll move on to another one soon, but you mentioned earlier there the idea of a 360-degree feedback survey, which are, are fantastic. They give a lot of people insight and awareness. What if you don't have access to that? Your organization is not going to spend that money on you. You're on a, a bit of a, a personal journey of development and discovery. How can you get that type of feedback, that kind of awareness without a formal 360 degrees. Yeah, it's a really good point. I um, look there, you could probably, you know, use Dr. Google to, you know, look at do it, you know, some free 360 kind of tools out mm. there. They're not going to be quite as good. But even things simple as, you know, going and asking, mm. you know, being prepared to hear the good and the maybe not so good. And what I mean by that is, you know, talking to your peers. So, you know, saying, look, you know, 
do you notice when I'm stressed? You know, what, what shows up when you see that? You know, how would you describe me on a good and a bad day? See if they're picking up on that. It could be to ask your staff that, you know, just, you know, either one-on-one or as a group, you know, asking, look, you know, are, you know, are you noticing anything? Asking your boss, you know, even just having that sort of really informal feedback loop. So, you know, there's some free tools out there. I've got one on my website that I make freely available to people called the Transformational Leadership Scale. And it's just a really simple two-pager where the leader can score themselves on different domains um, and then they can give it to their team or whoever they wish to. So, you know, there's a few of those kinds of things out there. So, you know, your listeners are free to access that. I can provide you the links for that. We'll put that in the show notes for for this podcast, of course. And you need to do that. And I, I I'm always really impressed when people come to me, and it happens occasionally. They'll say, "Hey, look, I'm really consciously developing at the moment as a professional, as a person. I'm on a real journey. Can you tell me these things?" And they might give you a series of, you know, just a handful of questions, and they want some honest feedback. I'm always super impressed when I get that because it takes a lot of guts. You know, it's easy to do these kind of quiet little secret efforts where you listen to staff and you try and self-improve in a really kind of introverted way. But as soon as you go external and ask for some feedback, you're kind of putting yourself out there just to one or two people, but it's it's a leap of commitment. And I really admire it when people do that. So it's not all just about the 360 degree feedback. Like Margie says, only about 10% of people accurate when they try and guess what others see in them. So we really do need that external feedback and it's a, a real leap of faith to do that. All right, let's just go with one more. In terms of things that you've seen as barriers to happy and healthy leadership, you started off with this one that we've talked about in in depth, lack of self-awareness. What's another one? Fear of failure, fear of succeeding. What are we fearful could be all of those. Of? Yeah, well, mainly from a leadership perspective, definitely fear of failure fear of, you know, like shame almost, you know, embarrassing themselves, that kind of stuff. And linked to fear is the good old imposter syndrome. Mm. So fear that people will figure me out, Yeah, that I'm not as good as maybe what they think or that my, you know, profile on LinkedIn or the, the, the company corporate website is what it is. So yeah, and so that fear is, is again, comes to that fear, flight, fright response, you know. So rather than acknowledge the fear, we tend to develop ways of trying to push the fear away. Mm. I'd love to hear, let's talk about why, what, what you do as someone who works with people, coaches people when, when you've identified fear, but there's so much to talk about here. I had a mate um, who was a deputy principal in a school and he became a principal. And when he first became a principal, I remember he said something to me that, you know, you know, someone had sort of mentored him and said, look, you, you, know, you might feel as though you kind of, you know, you're a bit of an imposter at, at the start because you're, you know, you're brand new to this role. And he was very relaxed about it and said, you know what, we're all kind of acting in our role because if you have been in a role for too long, you might've gone stale. But Essentially, we're all relatively new to a role, so we've all got to find our our feet with that. And he was very relaxed, and I'll always remember that that quote. It was he said, "We're all basically acting in a role," and that makes some people quite comfortable. They're okay to move forward with ambition, but for others, it makes them feel so uncomfortable. 
How do you know when someone is limiting themselves because of fear? Because they probably don't say those words to you. It certainly helps being trained in behaviour. <laughs> so, you know, this is where I feel I'm really grateful, you know, to have, you know, learnt this later in life um, and become trained in, in how we behave, particularly under stress. It tends to show up in these really interesting behaviours. And, and let me give you a couple of examples. So, you know, I'll have a leader come to me who might have been, come, been, been sent to me, you know, so their organisation has said, look, we've had some staff turnover under them or we've had some feedback that, you know, they're not doing so well or they're stressed or whatever. They need some help. Yeah. And so, you know, and I've had one recently where, you know, he had lacked a bit of self-awareness or so it seemed. And, you know, he was quite you know, well, you know, I'm fine and, you know, there's nothing wrong and, and you know, it was almost like there was bravado or almost an arrogance mm. about it, right? Arrogance for me is always the first red flag because often a mask. the opposite is true. Mm. Um, and there's a tool I, I guide people through in the book called The Matrix which really helps leaders understand how that works for them and what they can do about it. And often they're unaware of it, but, I'll, you know, I, I've seen that. And often when I see that, because, you know, over time and building trust and, so, you know, some training, you know, I had one guy recently where, he, it, you know, the, it, the arrogance was so big. And that's not a judgment. It was just what was coming across to me was I said, you know, you must, you know, it, I get the impression that, you're really struggling and that there's a bit of pain going on there. Like that, you know, how are you? He broke down in tears and it so moved me. And I, and, you know, and, and that doesn't happen all the time, but you know, there's, it, it's almost like I was giving him permission mm. for it to be okay. And as soon as that he did that completely different person showed up. And one of the things Brene Brown, one of my idols, talks a lot about is, you know, courage and vulnerability. And, you know, she gives this great example of how, you know, when she was speaking to some military, how, you know, when they go into battle, she thought, oh, you know, how are they going to be about vulnerability? Why am I talking to these people? Yeah. They're going to bluff me out of the room. Yeah. And she said to them, you know, when you go into you know, battle, what do you need? And they said, courage. I'm like, okay. So what do you need behind that? What's behind it? What are you protecting? And they all had to think about it, but it was vulnerability. Yeah. Well, my life. Yeah. I'm protecting my life. Yeah, which makes them vulnerable. Yeah. And, you know, from my experience, you know, courage and vulnerability really go hand in hand. And so when I see a leader who's coming across in fear, whether it's through arrogance or maybe they're drinking and eating and more or whatever, when they start to access that more vulnerable side, courage emerges, you know, because they start to really realise that that's the block, you know, that they're in their own way. And it's not as bad as what they've been imagining. But just the ability to put it out in the open, talk about it, mull it over consciously, sort of uh, takes away part of the monster of the problem, yeah. I guess. All right, hey, I'm going to ask you very soon for your top three tips mm. of 
being a happy and healthy leader or a healthy and and then happy leader. But before we do that, I, I want to talk to you about the seven steps that you talk about in your book. Of course, we, we wouldn't do them justice trying to go through them here, but they're, they're very logical, they're very wise, and you can imagine working through them. You know, when you enter a saturated market like this, leadership development, and it's, you know, it's such a well-worn path and you, you create your own path with your own book, what specifically are you trying to achieve with your seven steps that, you know, doesn't necessarily beat the market or is different to the market, but is just something through all of your experience and professional development, you've learned to be real and true for a leader to develop? What is it that sits at the heart of your seven steps? So even though we've been talking a little bit about kind of the theory and the mind, you know, at the end of the day, leaders, are, you know, particularly senior leaders or CEOs, they've got to run a business and it's got to be practical. You know, whatever they're trying to achieve and do, it's got to be stuff that they can actually implement and that's going to help them with their bottom line. You know, like, you know, I get it. I've run businesses. I've been a leader. I've got this really strong commercial background. And so what I've tried to do with the book and the seven steps is bring together really good sound science on, you know, stress and leadership with what it takes to keep a business going and what's important and bring that that together into seven steps that are quite practical, really, that, you know, can be implemented pretty much straight away. So. Yeah, that was the the thought behind it because if it's something that you can't use and access and use every day, you're not going to. So nothing's going to change. All right. And like I said, we're going to get to your tips, your three nuggets of gold very quickly. But right at the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned the question and you left it unanswered. Psychologically, are very senior leaders different to the rest of us? <laughs> so a CEO of a huge organization or the president or prime minister of a country, um, someone who acts in a very senior way and moves in very senior circles, are they different to me? Yes and no. So what I see is the same is that, you know, they're still having the same amount of doubt, as I was saying earlier, the same amount of that negative self-talk I talk about in the book. They still experience the same kind of, you know, strong emotions that everyone feels. Where I saw the difference is their relationship with them. So what they did next, you know, were they able to navigate through those and if you like, turn on that more rational brain a bit sooner so that they could make good sound decisions so that they were able to move the business forward even though they perhaps were feeling quite stressed themselves. Mm. Now, that's not all leaders. There's lots of leaders out there that would be considered to be highly successful that aren't doing those things as well. But when I look at the ones that in the study and then since then that I've seen really grow, it's that ability to take that moment, to take a step back and go, okay, I've got two forks in the road here. Which, you know, which path am I going to take? Am I going to take the path of, you know, reactivity and quickly dealing with the stress, you know, through, you know, taking it out on others or avoiding it or eating, drinking or whatever? Or am I going to you know, move towards something that maybe is a bit harder, 
but it's more aligned with my values and goals, which requires me to perhaps take a look at myself first and what it is that I need to check in about my own mindset. What do I have control over? And what's the next step that I can make that's going to be, you know, better for me, but also better for everyone else? That is such a terrific answer. It kind of addresses one of the things that I ponder very frequently of, you know, the idea that we can talk in this lovely, clean, neat environment about leadership in a theoretical way. But anyone who's listening to this on on a walk with their dog will go to work tomorrow with all of these great ideas that you've shared in their head, but then things will start moving all around them. (laughs) And it's nothing like what we talked about. You know, actually being at work is a very different experience to how we talk about it here. But that's what you've just identified with those very senior people who who are leaders at at a high level and do it well, the ability to think clearly in the muck, the ability to keep your rational brain engaged where they're in an environment where there are lots of moving parts and lots of things going right and wrong, flowing all over the place. Is, is that a fair summary? It's amazing. That's great. So that's, that's a very good answer to something that I, I often ponder. All right, Margie, we're very quickly running out of time. I always ask my guests to leave with three nuggets of gold. Give them to us. And I always reserve the right to interrupt you and ask you lots of questions. <laughs> okay. Well, the first one I think is as... I was referring to earlier is to, you know, where are you now? You know, make the time to, whether it's to write it down, you know, type it, talk to a friend or a mate or someone you trust, but, you know, where are you now? You know, are you happy and healthy with, you know, your career or your leadership career as a leader? Are you enjoying it? Is it what you thought it would be? you know, have that really kind of honest conversation with yourself about yourself and be okay with whatever shows up from that. You know, the, the caveat I put on that is notice when that, that that inner critic shows up on your head and then starts shaming you and starts going, oh, well, stop thinking like that or stop being like that. You know, for, for just in this, this, this exercise, however you're going to do it, whether it's right about it or you know, write down a few notes or talk to someone, just let it be what it is for what it is. So that's a good start. Where am I now? All right. So let's just say I'm engaged with this. I think you're right, Margie, that's a good place to start. Give me some structure. When I say, where am I now? What do I, you know, how, what do I think about it? Are there categories that I should be contemplating? Should I just be thinking about my professional life here or my, my whole life? When you say, where am I now? Give me some structure yeah. about that. Yeah. So think of it as in, so 12 months from now, if you could pick a destination of where you'd like to be or prefer to be, and this is a bit like that ideal and actual self. So sometimes I say to people, you know, write a column of actual self and ideal self. So, and sometimes doing it in reverse is easier. So 12 months time, where do I want to be? Ideal you know? self. Yeah, so whether it's in your career, your your life, your health, those kinds of things. And then where are you now? Mm. Mm. You know, and is there a gap? Oh, I, I like that. So start with where I'd like to be in 12 months' time. And, and in terms of structure, when I'm pressed to think of my life in categories, I always fall back on an old classic, a Stephen Covey thing, where we talk about intellectually, socially, emotionally, 
and spiritually. And I think that's a pretty good place to start. But given this is a professional setting, I would add a fifth to that and think about it professionally. So where am I intellectually, socially, emotionally, and spiritually? Oh, sorry. No, one of those is physically, sorry. Intellectually, emotionally, socially, and physically. But then add to that professionally, where am I in terms of the job I'm doing and and how fulfilled I feel by that. So that's a really nice place to start. Where I want to be in 12 months time and where am I now? So that's number one. That's your nugget of gold. Number one, where am I now? What's number two? So second one would be to pick something that you're going to do in the next week that is going to be more of a healthy coping strategy for stress. So some of those ones we've talked about. So if you know that you're not moving your body as much as you need to, pick um, some kind of physical activity that you enjoy, <laughs> that you can do, even if it's just once or twice this week. And But also notice how much your mind gets in the way of you doing it. Post tricks comes up with all sorts oh, of excuses yeah. as yeah. to why I shouldn't have to do that thing. Yeah, yeah. And if your mind starts to weigh in, let your mind come with you on that activity. Let it follow you. Like a, like a complaining teenager yeah, being dragged along. Yeah, let it follow you to the – I remember a, a personal trainer of mine used to say to me, um, she used to say, if you get to the gym and you're there for 10 minutes and you still don't want to be there, then go home. And with mindset, often it's the biggest battle is showing up. So if exercise isn't really your thing, then another thing can be, you know, connecting with something of interest or something that you care about over the next week. So maybe it's a hobby or an interest that you haven't gotten to for a while. Sometimes people have to, you know, do a bit of a Dr. Google on hobbies, remind themselves of what they used to enjoy, and that's okay because we often do forget. Or maybe it's someone that you haven't seen for a while. But find something in the next week that either relaxes you, gives you joy, you know, something like that. And again, notice your mind again about how it gets in the way, how it says you haven't got time, all those sorts of things. Because we, leaders in particular, really struggle to, you know, make that time for themselves, as we talked about right at the beginning of the interview. So, and, or give mindfulness a go. Mindfulness. As your your activity, you know. So, you know, over the next week, some of my favourites are um, Smiling Mind. That's the Australian one. There's stuff on there for kids, for teenagers, for the workplace. So give it a go, you know, and, you know, approach it with some curiosity, you know, rather than judgment and just see what happens. That's great advice. So number one was ask yourself, where am I now? And we delved into that a little bit and we talked about thinking about where I want to be in 12 months time, where I am now. And of course, that will help us to start to imagine a path. Number two was do something to either move your body or connect with a hobby, something that brings you joy or helps you to relax. Give mindfulness a try if you haven't done that. And what's number three? I can't help but not suggest this one because of what I do, but ask for help. You know, if you are struggling, if you're not sure what to do next, if you go, well, yeah, I kind of resonate with all of this, but I don't know what to do. There's lots of support out there, you know, whether it's, you know, looking at some online training around um, mindset and mood, there's heaps of it out there, whether it's engage, you know, a coach 
whether it's speak to a counsellor, speak to a friend or someone at work. A lot of organisations have employee assistance programs, very confidential. So, you know, whether it's through those means, you know, whatever they are, maybe it's, you know, get a book. You know, we're talking about that today. But something that's on that journey of getting the help that you need. That is terrific advice. Margie Ireland, author of The Happy, Healthy Leader, Psychologist, Coach. It's been wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. And that was Margie Ireland. She's so clear about the things that can help us develop as healthy and happy leaders. And she's clear too about the things that could get in our way, a lack of self-awareness and fear. And how about those top three tips? Number one, ask yourself, where am I now? Where do I want to be in 12 months in my life, my work, my career? Number two, do something in the next week to move your body or connect with an old hobby, something, anything that brings you joy and helps you relax. And number three, seek help. Starting a journey of discovery is a worthy pursuit, but it can be hard. You don't have to do it all alone. There's a lot of help all around you. As always, I'll share these tips and the other lessons I took from my conversation with Margie on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.